of this book. Father, as we turn now our Bibles, we turn our hearts toward the throne of heaven. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal your truth to us as we live in this time and space continuum. I pray, Father, that you'd encourage us with the vision that Daniel sees of the future, that you have a plan, that you will execute that plan, and that plan ends with the reign of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. My son has an interesting concept of time. Of course, it's a kid's concept of time. When you're a kid, days seem like years. Years uh, seem like, you know, you can't even fathom that. It's an eternity. And of course, when you get older, years seem like days. Time seems to compress for a lot of us. When my son doesn't like something, he is quick to mention, well, is it almost over? Is the news almost over? If we're driving in the car, he hates long drives. Are we almost there? Well, son, we've only been on the road five minutes. Well, are we almost there? When he's anticipating something, he'll ask almost the same question. When's it coming? When's it going to be here? He's excited about the new baby that's going to come in the house in May. And his question is, well, when is that baby going to come? And he keeps asking this question like it's supposed to pop out at any moment. Nine months for him is like an eternity. And he's so excited. Really, he sees a coming slave into his life. That's how he views this baby right now. Somebody to boss around other than our dog. Seriously, he said, oh, I'm going to have this child pick up my room and get me breakfast in bed and do this and do that. So when's it going to be here? One of the gripping questions that people have, I think especially in this generation, is when will the end be here? All this talk about the end of the world, well, where is it? When will it come? George Gallup noted that that's one of the top ten questions that people would ask God if they had a private audience with him. When will be the end of the world? And in Daniel chapter 12, it's not only the final chapter, it's a revelation of the final chapter of world history, where time ceases and eternity begins. And we realize after reading this book that James was right. Our life is like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. It's a wisp of the wind. I heard of a man who died, and he was going up to the pearly gates in heaven, and he walked right in, and of course there was the angel there with the clipboard, as in all of these jokes. And uh, the angel was interviewing him, and he said, uh, name, address, you know, phone number, and got all the specifics. The angel said, "Uh, could you relate to us one experience you've had where you've been totally kind and selfless while you were on the earth? The man thought, and he goes, yeah, I can think of one that you might be interested in. One day I was walking down the street. I saw an older lady being mercilessly beaten by a huge motorcycle gang member. I stepped in, kicked his motorcycle over, kicked him in the shin, told the lady to run. I belted the guy in the mouth, and I saved her life. The angel said, boy, that's impressive. When did that take place? man looked at his watch. He said, oh, about three minutes ago. All of us one day 
will have our life cease and eternity begin. And we will stand before God. Now, chapter 12 continues the vision and wraps it up that Daniel began seeing in chapter 10. In verse 1, at that time, which is the time of the Antichrist and in the tribulation period, if you remember back, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered... All these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed that is preserved until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. There's a phrase that is a thread throughout the book. It's called the time of the end. It's mentioned three times in this chapter alone. The time of the end. That is the final chapter of world history that will usher in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And God has many scriptures that predict this time. Some are very detailed. Some are not so detailed. And now we don't know all that's going to happen in the future. I know there are prophecy buffs who study hard and they've got everything mapped out to the exact day in some cases. There's a lot that we do know, there's a lot that we don't know, and we ought to be content with what God has given to us. Some might ask, well, why couldn't God have been a little more detailed and maybe told us exactly what we're going to look like and the things that we'll be doing in heaven and so on and so forth? Well, I suppose it's like a kid eating a bowl of spinach. He might eye at the end of the table a cheesecake or strawberry dessert. It's awfully hard for him to keep his eye on what he's doing, eating that spinach, as he knows what's up ahead. Perhaps if God showed everything what's going to happen to us in glory, it'd be hard for us to eat our spinach on earth. We get very, very distracted. 
Though the Bible says that we should keep a mind on eternity and an eye on the future. In our chapter this morning, we want to look at four different things concerning this final episode of world history. First of all, the revelation of the final events in a general sense. What kind of a time will it be? The revelation of these future events. Secondly, we want to look at the rescue of God's people in verse 1. The resurrection of a multitude in verse 2. And then finally, the rewards for the wise in verse 3. In verse 1 and 2 and in verse 8 and 10, it talks about a persecution that is coming upon the Jews and wickedness in general. In verse 10, many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. There will come a time of increased wickedness during the tribulation period. Now, we are not in that period now, yet. We see inklings of wickedness on the rise, do we not? We see days getting worse and worse, as the Bible predicted them. I often have quoted to you a book that I have read by Peter Kim called The Day America Told the Truth. It's a series of polls and interviews with the American people. And at the conclusion of his book, he said, quote, Have you noticed that most books and movies about the future portray a world you wouldn't want to live in? More than half of the people we talk to honestly believe that the 21st century will be dirtier, harsher, harder, grimier, gloomier than the world of today. I think they're right. I think they're right not just because Peter Kim said so in his book, but because Paul predicted it to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me refresh your memory. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Well, you'd swear that Paul just read USA Today or Time Magazine with that kind of a statement from a modern setting. Lovers of themselves, narcissism. Lovers of pleasure, hedonism. Lovers of money, materialism. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and so forth. This kind of stuff is on the rise. It will be very prevalent, extremely prevalent in the final chapter of history. Now, the sad part is that this is part of the judgment of God. When a nation or an individual turns and rejects God and turns to other things, part of that judgment in Romans 1 is that God says, fine, you want debauchery, you want sexual immorality, you want no values, I'm going to give you over to all of the things you desire. And as I look at our nation... I see a nation who once held certain virtues as dear and certain other vices as destructive. And we've sort of taken the virtues and the vices and we've swapped places with them. We call good evil and evil good. The heroes of America are becoming people like Howard Stern or Roseanne. People who shock others with their words and their disposition. We go, yeah, that's self-expression. That's great. It used to be never allowed. 
That is on the rise. Verse 4, if you notice it, is part of the revelation of final events in a general sense. There will be an increase in knowledge. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We know this is the computer age, right? The age of information. Cumulative knowledge doubles every few years on planet Earth. Nations like America and Japan are spending much of their time and energy and money into being information providers. On the basis of this verse, verse 4, Sir Isaac Newton, when he read the Bible, predicted that there would come a time when man would have such knowledge that would enable him to travel up to 50 miles an hour. When he made that prediction, the atheist, Voltaire, said, look at what studying the Bible has done to this poor idiot, Isaac Newton. For we all know that man could never survive if he went over 25 miles an hour. Knowledge shall increase. But that's probably not the intent of this verse, that men will get smarter and more educated and have cumulative knowledge. The idea seems to be that in the tribulation period, knowledge of God's plan for the last times will increase more than ever before. In fact, the idea of going to and fro is a Hebrew idiom that suggests futilely looking for something that you cannot find. Now, what does this mean? Well, Jesus predicted that there would be a distress of nations with perplexity, which means they will find no way out of their problem. Perplexity. One commentator, Leon Wood, paraphrases the verse like this. Many shall run to and fro in their desire for knowledge of the last things, finding it in Daniel's book because it will have been preserved to this end. Their knowledge will be increased. In other words, during the tribulation period, as people are scurrying back and forth to find out why are we going through this terrible mess on earth, they will look to the book of Daniel. Their knowledge will be opened up, the book of Revelation and Matthew. Revelation is an unsealed book. This is to be preserved, Daniel is, till the time of the end. They will read Daniel like they're reading the newspaper. It will make so much sense to them. Now think back the last few years. Since 1948, when Israel became a nation once again, there seems to be an increase in the knowledge of prophecy. Have you noticed that? An explosion of knowledge about last things. Things are clearer to us today than they were 1,000, 2,000, or 3,000 years ago. But in the tribulation period, as people are going through a terrible time of judgment, things will be most clear to them. The prophecies of the past will be very, very clear. If you go down to verse 6 and 7, it says that this will be a very specific period of time. One of the beings by the side of the river Tigris says, well, how long is this going to be? Verse 7, the answer comes, a time, times, and a half a time, which is prophetic language for three and a half years. In fact, some of your Bibles have a footnote that says three and a half years. That's what it means in a Hebrew idiom. The reign of the Antichrist, this final dictator that we have mentioned so often in Daniel, 
His reign of terror will last three and a half years. This is not a guess. I'm surprised at how clear the Bible is about this. There are several places. Here's a few. In Revelation chapter 11, during this time of judgment, as the Antichrist surfaces, God sends two witnesses to his people, the Jews. And it says they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days. That's three and a half prophetic years. In the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 6, Israel goes to the wilderness after being persecuted, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, three and a half prophetic years. Another chapter later, chapter 13, verse 5, it says the Antichrist was given a mouth. He's always a big mouth in the scriptures, isn't he? He boasts against God and he thinks that he is God. He's given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. He sets up the abomination of desolation. He lasts 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. However, we have a problem, as you read in verse 11, really not a problem, it's just more revelation. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now that's an extra month from the 1,260. What's going to happen during that time? Here's the profound answer. I don't know. It doesn't say so, does it? We can speculate. It could be that this is when the nations will be judged. In Matthew chapter 25, the nations are gathered before God and He separates them as one would separate the sheep from the goats. This is the judgment of the nations judged for how they treated the nation of Israel during that period. It could be that the 30 days, this is what is happening. But we don't know. But now in verse 12 and 13, a blessing is promised to those who hang in there, notice, to the 1,335th day. Which means you have three and a half prophetic years plus 75 days, 30 and 45 extra days. Again, the question, what is going to happen during that time? Again, the answer, I don't know. But I can give you a few guesses that perhaps would fill in the blanks. We know that the kingdom will be ushered in after this. It could be that during this last 45 days, the machinery for the government of the kingdom, the assignments are passed out to the righteous during that time. It could be that the border of Israel is established for the kingdom age. They've never occupied their borders from the river of Egypt to the river of the Euphrates. It could be that the borders are established. Also, it could be a mopping up period after Armageddon and the attacks upon the Jewish people in the surrounding wars. We also know that topographical changes will occur. The Dead Sea, which has no life in it, it says during the Millennial Kingdom will have fish swimming in it, teeming with life. A temple will be built for the Millennium. All of these things could be happening, though God could do it instantly, but it could be happening during this final 45 days. Also, I have a suggestion that the marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned in Revelation takes place upon the earth during those 45 days. I know that many Christians believe that it's going to take place in heaven, but there's no necessary indication of that. 
And that's what verse 11 could mean when it talks about he who waits has this blessing. I bring that up because the Jewish form of a wedding was like this. The bride and the bridegroom would first go to the house of the bridegroom and announce their marriage. A year later, after a year of betrothal, they would go to the house of the bride and have the ceremony and then have the marriage supper. It could be, it's very suggestive, that we get raptured before the tribulation and taken to the house of the bridegroom. We then come back at the end of the tribulation to the earth, the house of the bride, where we enjoy the marriage supper. That's a possibility. Either way, I'm looking forward to the marriage supper. Do you ever think about that supper? you ever wonder what they're going to serve? What it's going to be like? It's going to be better than any gala event you've ever seen. Now go back to verse 1. The second big thing to notice about chapter 12 is the rescue of God's people, that is the Jews. At that time, which is the time of the tribulation and the reign of the Antichrist, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, that's the Jews. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Just before the end of the world, the Bible in several places predicts that Israel will be hassled and dragged into the war zone, as we remember last week, for a final persecution by this world dictator. Now, for this to occur, Israel has to be in the land. So these things could never have happened before May 14, 1948. Israel wasn't in the land. Daniel saw them return to the land. But right after the time of Jesus Christ in 70 A.D., the Jews were persecuted and taken out of Israel. It wasn't until May 14, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion announced the state of Israel has once again been born, that the Jews started going back to the land of Israel in unprecedented numbers. Well, the Bible says that Israel will be in the land. But as we see already, they're hassled. It's not secure. There's been World War II. There's been the Six-Day War, 67, 73. Scud missiles a few years ago. Oh, I know there's peace talks right now, but they won't last long. That's my prediction. Last week, 13 people were killed in an Arab terrorist group in Jerusalem, tourists at Ben Yehuda Street, where we always take our groups. A few days later, more tourists were killed. The attacks are on the increase. Menachem Begin, as you remember, the former prime minister of Israel, was speaking to a colleague of mine. He was over in Israel. And they were talking about the Bible and prophecy and Christians. And Begin said, you know, I've noticed something, that it's born-again American Christians who love prophecy that are the most likely to stand with Israel as our ally. They love Israel. But he said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that there's a coming persecution, as many people believe, upon the Jewish nation? The pastor said, with all due respect, sir, as much as I love Israel, the Bible predicts such a time that is very, very devastating to your nation. It'll be the worst time in history. Begin said, I sure hope you're not right, but the more and more that I live, I believe that you are. I think it's coming. Begin said that. The Bible predicts that time is coming. Right now, Israel has a hundred million people around her who hate her, 
who would love to see her pushed into the sea and annihilated. Some of them will quote the Koran, which says, Allah has cursed the Jews for their unbelief. The curse of Allah is on all unbelievers. One leader from the Islamic Jihad group, when four years ago Saddam Hussein started marching on Kuwait and then sent scuds over to Israel, in seeing that he would promise to send chemical warfare into the land of Israel, this leader told reporters this amazing statement. He said, I hope Saddam is as good as his word. The killing of the Jews will continue, killing, killing, killing in God's name until they all vanish. Then there's Muammar Gaddafi down in Libya, who went on record and made the statement that he will die in Galilee vowing to personally fight in the war that will annihilate the Zionists once and for all forever from off the face of the earth. These are the kind of neighbors that this little country has. And at the time of the end, that persecution against this nation with the Antichrist in charge after he breaks the covenant, in the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half, right in the middle, he will unleash his fury. But notice what it says, Michael will stand up. Michael is like the bodyguard, the terminator to the Jewish nation, standing up to protect her. It's an archangel with incredible power that though the hosts of wickedness come against Israel, Michael says, all right, now you're in for a fight. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down Revelation 12 and look it up later. It describes this battle. And Michael standing up. Here's a couple verses. War broke out. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. The next few verses say, The nation of Israel will be persecuted but preserved in the wilderness for 1,260 days during this time of persecution. Now, before we move on, just a note. For every one wicked angel or demon, there are two good angels. I wish more Christians would remember that. We get so preoccupied with demonology and deliverance and the devil here and there. It's two to one ratio, folks. Besides that, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus lives in you. The Father lives in you. And then you've got two angels for every demon. You don't have to be afraid. Oh, I know they're out there. They're out to get you. But even the humblest believer will cause the devil to flee from him if he resists him. The Bible says that. Dr. Billy Graham was told the story by a missionary, John G. Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He went there to preach the gospel. He formed a mission statement, uh, station. One evening, the locals, the natives, surrounded the mission station, intent on burning it down and killing Patton and his wife. He said, that night my wife and I prayed for deliverance. As morning broke, we saw these natives all flee away. A year later, he said, the chief of that tribe became a Christian. And I said, uh, do you remember that incident a year ago when you guys were going to burn us down? Why did you run away? Chief answered, what do you mean run away? We noticed the amount of soldiers that you had around your post. We were outnumbered. He said, what soldiers? We were all alone. That's not what we saw. All of my men saw, he said, shining soldiers with their swords drawn. And we left the next morning. And he told that to Billy Graham. And he said, you know what? Angels were there watching out for me. So Israel will be persecuted. Michael shall stand up. 
the rescue of God's people. Thirdly, in verse 2, we have the resurrection of a multitude, two different groups. It says, and many, or a multitude, as some versions say, of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and contempt. Now, people look at this verse and they say, aha, that's soul sleep. That means when you die, you just kind of go into unconsciousness until the return of Christ. That's nonsense. In the Bible, the only thing that is seen as sleeping is the body, never the soul. The resurrection is for the body, not the soul. Paul said, for me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The last breath you take on earth, Christian, will be the first breath you take in God's presence. And so there's a resurrection. We die, we sleep, the body looks like it's asleep, and though it even might and will corrupt, there will be a resurrection of that body, and it will be changed to newness of life. Just like a kid who takes a nap. He goes down for a nap, it's not permanent, he'll get up again. Now when kids are young, they usually see naps as a punishment. When you're older, it's a reward. You say, I'm going to die. It's a punishment. Well, it depends on your perspective. Oh, you're going to die, but what's coming? What's ahead of you in the resurrection? The body that you're going to get is going to be so awesome. I look forward to the resurrection. I do. Before first service today, I was sitting down. I got up to my feet to come up and open the service. My assistant pastor heard my knees cracking. I've got chondromalacia in them, this wearing down of the cartilage. He goes, ooh, I heard those things crack. And I just, yeah, it's always a reminder of what's ahead. I won't have to be in this body for very long. It will be changed in the resurrection. Now, the resurrection, briefly, there's not one general resurrection. For example, Lazarus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago by Jesus. The widow's son was raised from the dead. Those are two resurrections, but really they're resuscitations. They died again. The resurrection spoken of here is permanent. Now, if you're a Christian at the time of the rapture, the dead Christians who died before that time will be resurrected with their new bodies. And then we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. The resurrection here is speaking of during, at the end, excuse me, of the tribulation period, both the tribulation martyrs, those that came to faith in Christ during that time, and the Old Testament saints. It's at the very end of days, it says here. There was a man who was an older man, and if you're getting to this age, you might want to just remember this little story and use it. Somebody said, how old are you? He said, I'm on the right side of 70. They found out he was 75. He said, I thought you said you were on the right side of 70. He said, I am. I'm on the side of heaven. I'm on the right side. I'm closer to heaven than I ever was before. That's the right side of 70. He was looking forward to what was ahead. There's another resurrection it speaks about. It says, some to everlasting life and some to shame and contempt. That's just as true, folks. That's just as true. The second resurrection takes place, according to Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years after the first resurrection. The first is to everlasting life. There's a thousand years. And then the dead are raised. The 
Unbelievers are raised. At the end of that thousand years, they stand before the great white throne. The books are open. Their names are not found. And they're cast into the lake of fire. For these people, it will not be a bright light, a warm experience being embraced by the light. It will be a very, very sad time. You've got to understand something about eternity that has never changed. There's good news and there's bad news. There's a heaven, there's a hell. I realize it's not popular to speak about hell. It's not politically correct. In fact, it's not theologically correct in some churches. I heard of one pastor who said, if you don't love Jesus with all your heart, you may go to a place that's not too polite to mention. Jesus mentioned it because he loved people enough to warn them to stay out. He talked about hell, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He spoke about it very, very openly. In fact, I fear that some are on the road to hell today who might be listening to this message, who are smug because they've come to church or they've become a little bit religious. It's been said that the road to hell runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and in the midst of invitations. The gospel is heard, but it's not acted upon. Charles Spurgeon, in his classic manner, warned his own congregation some years ago in England about this horrible possibility with these words. Here's a quote out of his sermon on hell. He said, Your heart, speaking to the unbeliever, will be beating with a high fever, your pulse rattling at an enormous rate in agony, your limbs cracking like the martyrs in the fire, yet unburned, yourself put in a vessel of hot oil, pained, yet coming out undestroyed, all your veins becoming a road for the hot feet of pain to travel on, every nerve a string on which the devil shall ever play his diabolical tune of hell's unutterable lament. Your soul forever and ever aching, your body palpitating in unison with your soul. Fictions, you say? They are no fictions, but as God lives, solid, stern truths. If God be true, and if this Bible be true, what I have said is the truth, and you will find it one day to be so. Oh, those are heavy words. Yeah, but you know what? I know that in this country, the people that have been looked down upon are the hellfire and brimstone preachers, right? When was the last time you heard a good message on hellfire and brimstone? You haven't because people are too afraid to talk about it. Jesus spoke about it more than any other person in the Bible because he loved people enough to tell them the truth. Some will arise to everlasting life. Some will arise to this everlasting shame and contempt. Knowing that, verse 3 is a perfect transition. It's our final point. The resurrection of the multitudes is followed by the reward of the wise. The reward of the wise. Listen to this. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Can you see the transition? If there is a resurrection of heaven and hell, then those who are wise will do everything they can to share the gospel with those people to avert them from going to a place called hell. Be wise. Warn people. Love people and tell them the truth. Lead many to righteousness. This is evangelism. As I read this verse, I can't help but think of Dr. Billy Graham. 
That's a wise man. He's preached to 107 million plus people in his lifetime. He's preached the gospel more than any other person who's ever lived. I was this week back at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center, where I do a session every year. Greg Laurie and I do one together. As we were there, one afternoon, Franklin, Billy's son, took us over to their house. We had a little lunch, and uh, Billy was saying, well, I'm going to be there tonight. And I was going to share the gospel that night and do my message. He said, well, I'm going to be there tonight to listen to you. And I'm thinking, oh, great. <laughs> I mean, how would you like to preach the gospel in front of Billy Graham? Well, he came that night. And to kind of add a twist to the story, the subject they asked me to speak on was evangelism. Now, what's wrong with this picture? The man who led me to Christ is sitting there with his wife taking notes as I'm speaking. But he has given more messages around the world. He's been wise and led many, including myself, to righteousness and to truth. Those that do that will shine forever. Hey, you want your name in lights? Think about these lights. Or you say, no, I want to be a famous Hollywood star. Make a real splash. Oh, you will, but it's like fireworks. She'll go up, bang, everybody will go, ooh, oh, and then what next? It's history. It's so short-lived. You want to really shine forever. Share the gospel. Come to Jesus Christ. Be part of His team, His kingdom. Lead many to righteousness. I love that. I'm going to shine in heaven. Now think about that next time you go through a trial. Paul said, I'm certain that all of the heartaches, all of the pressure, he said all of the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Down here, we're talking crummy. Up there, we're talking glory in its fullest sense. In comparison, you can't compare them. They're not worthy to be compared. Now, the world has a measuring stick for wisdom. Get educated. Be politically correct. Think this way. The Bible has another measuring stick for wisdom. Proverbs 11, He that winneth souls is wise. He that wins souls is wise. It's been said that if you want to plant something that will last a year, plant a flower. You want to plant something that will last a lifetime, plant a tree. You want to plant something that will last an eternity, plant the truth of the Word of God, the gospel, in the heart of a person. That's investment. The truth, there's a tough time coming. It will eventuate in a resurrection. There will be some that are saved. There will be some that are lost. There will be some that go to heaven. There will be some that go to hell. God has prepared for you heaven. He's prepared heaven for you. Are you prepared for heaven? How can I be? Well, you can be by God's method, God's way. Believing, that is clinging, that is committing your life to His only Son who paid the penalty for your sins. There's no other way. There's no other philosophy. There's nothing that will cut it. Make that choice. Father, we continue in prayer as we conclude this service. Our hearts are wide open before you, even as history was wide open to you and still is. You know the end from the beginning, and you know everything that has gone on in our thought life. 
in our actions. You know where we stand with you. And some of us today, right now, sitting in this room, realize they're not on the right road. That when that resurrection comes, they'll be sitting in the wrong camp. And so, Father, I pray in your love that they would realize that fact and today turn to Jesus Christ and be a part of your kingdom.